Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. Reproductive control. It's a term that sounds medical. You might think of contraception or fertility treatment. But historically, reproductive control refers to something more specific and sinister. Eugenics. Eugenics began as one man's theory of population control, developed in Victorian England. His view that the best of humanity should reproduce more and the lessers less. Best was a relative idea. The strategy was explicitly racist, designed to breed away characteristics seen then as hereditary traits, poverty, criminality, disability. Still, eugenic thinking crossed the ocean and became all too popular among North Americans in the opening decades of the 1900s. Early supporters included many influential figures, like politicians right across political lines, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Canadian socialist Tommy Douglas. Eugenic laws were established in certain American states and Canadian provinces, and sterilization policies followed. More than 2,800 young Albertans were legally sterilized between 1928 and 1972. Leilani Muir and Glenn Sinclair were two of them. They had been declared mentally defective at Alberta's provincial training school in the 1950s. From the film documentary, Surviving Eugenics. The eugenics board had to give approval. Five minutes in their office and we were out of there. It took five minutes for them to decide to wreck our lives. I thought that we were having an appendix up. Eugenic laws in North America provided the model for a similar one imposed by Germany's Third Reich in 1933 on the brutal road to the atrocities of World War II and the Holocaust. So, eugenics would seem to be a lesson from the 20th century, learned in the most brutal way. And yet, knowledge of eugenics may be fading, while the echoes of its ideas remain. You can hear them in the chants of today's white supremacists. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not See them in allegations of medical abuse. A new Quebec study documents the cases of 22 Indigenous women who say they underwent imposed sterilization between 1980 and 2019. The specter of eugenics also haunts debates around gene editing. Chinese biophysicist He Zhangqi, working largely in secret, had used CRISPR to knock out a gene called CCR5 in two early human embryos. 
then returned the embryos to their mother's womb. But the scientific community did not cheer. The reaction was shock and condemnation. This is kind of the motivation for writing this book at this time. Someone said to me, why are you writing about eugenics? That's history. And I think that it's not because the word eugenics became toxic, but the mode of thinking does not. The same conversations that are happening in 2020 were happening in 1920. The only difference is we're now talking about gene engineering and laws and things like that. But the, the, the motivation remains the same. My name is Dr. Adam Rutherford, and I am a, a geneticist and science communicator. He's the author of a new book on the dark history and troubling present of eugenics. It's called Control. Adam Rutherford is a lecturer in biology and society at University College London, an institution once associated with Francis Galton, the very thinker who coined the term eugenics. I spoke to Adam Rutherford, who takes a wry view of his connection to Francis Galton. He's been a constant presence in my entire academic life. And the, I think one of the most sort of circular, I think it's kind of amusing as well, uh, things is that my salary is actually paid by the legacy fund that he set up when he died in 1911 to promote the study of eugenics. Wow. And here I am paid by the same money to do, well, quite the opposite. There is justice in the world. <laughs> <laughs> if there's a buzzing noise, that's Francis Galton spinning in his grave. Can you describe how your professional life intersected with the father of eugenics? Basically, I went up to University College London in 1994, so 20-something years ago. And I initially went to study medicine, but then I transferred to genetics it was just a subject that suited me much better. And at that time, the laboratory in which the genetics department was housed at University College London was called the Galton, the Galton Laboratory, and it was named after Francis Galton. Now, in, in the initial lectures, we did talk about the legacy and the work of Francis Galton, this, this 19th century polymath, and uh, he's the half-cousin of Charles Darwin, and he's a really significant player in the history of science. But I have to confess, at the age of 18 or 19, it really didn't, you know, his more pernicious views and the views about eugenics, what I've ended up devoting my career to talking about, wasn't a big part of, uh, of my undergraduate life. Tell us about Galton. Not every, it's not a household name. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. And he, he's one of those sort of independently wealthy gentlemen of science of 19th century Victorian Britain. He comes from a, a, an extremely high achieving family. His father died when he was relatively young, and he went on travels around, mostly to Africa, and wrote a best-selling book about travels in Africa. But Mark Twain wrote that uh, travel expands the mind and helps you be more liberal about your fellow humans around the world. For Galton, it had the opposite effect. He came back a, an extreme racist, an extreme white supremacist for his age, not just his, you know, not just with the benefit of 21st century hindsight, but relatively for the Victorian era. And I characterize him as sort of an early data bro, a sort of tech ultra-systemizing brain. He's obsessed with numbers and statistics and thinks that you can answer questions, sort of esoteric questions, vague questions, by using statistics, by using numbers. His, his catchphrase was, whenever you can, count. But he was a bona fide scientist. 
I guess so. I mean, the, the word scientist doesn't even really come into use until 1834. And we're talking about the 1850s and 60s here. So he's a polymath mm. more than anything. So he invents statistical techniques to process his his attempts to understand how society is structured. He does loads of other stuff. The legacy of Galton is, is, is absolutely incredible. He invented the weather map. Uh, he invented the dog whistle, the, which, I, again, I think is quite amusing because since dog whistle has become a sort of code word for covert racism and he was an extreme overt racist, he actually invented the literal dog whistle. Loads of other things. He, he was very instrumental in determining that fingerprints are not heritable, that they are unique to individuals. And that became a sort of fundamental basis for forensic fingerprinting that we still use today. So his, his intellectual legacy is absolutely colossal. But the thing that, that we'll be talking about and the thing that he's most significantly remembered for is that in attempting to apply statistics to population control, he comes up with the, the word eugenics and also the sort of intellectual and scientific framework for this this idea, which becomes, I, I argue, one of the dominant ideas of the 20th century. Could you just uh, g- give us a, a sense of what it was precisely that Galton wanted to do in terms of population control? What was his ideal scenario? Yeah, so it's, it's an older idea that populations, that society can be improved by selective breeding. It starts really with Plato talking about how High-quality men should be matched with high-quality women uh, at, at mar- marriage festivals. And with that, you would maintain high-quality children and different stratification within society. Uh, and we think this type of idea has existed in pretty much every culture for the whole of human history. And it goes alongside the practice of infanticide as well, so that the, the killing of babies deemed unworthy. And we also think that that is pretty much universal in every society as, as well. By the time you get to the 18th and 19th century, you've got people like Thomas Malthus talking about population control through, well, various, various means. But it's all, it's, it's, it's rather unscientific. It's unnumerical as, as, as well. When Galton comes along, his understanding of, of his cousin's ideas about evolution, about natural selection and artificial selection, which is effectively is agriculture and breeding, and says, well, if humans are evolved as per Darwinian evolution, then why can't we apply the same sort of techniques, selective breeding, to improve, I'm kind of doing air quotes for the listeners, but to improve the quality of, of a people, of, of the British people, because he's a British guy at the time. And so he, he sort of drops this in at exactly the right time for the global West and the global North, where there's huge colonial expansion and there's huge problems with immigration and it's big societal issues. You've got, you, you, we're in the, in the wake of the industrial revolution. So cities have expanded. There's a much more visible poor. And Galton comes along and says, well, you know what we should do? We should improve the quality of, of society, but not by, by, by these old fashioned archaic methods, but using this new evolutionary science. So it starts off as a good thing. It starts mm-hmm. as a, it always starts off as a positive idea. The word that he comes up with, eugenics, is sort of derived from a, it's a portmanteau of Greek meaning you, you meaning good, and genics meaning sort of born. So it's like you know, well born. We want people to be well born. And it really becomes a mainstream idea. You know, the ideas that Galton formulated really took off, as you say, in the nineteenth and twentieth century. And the people who believed in it and backed this idea were not outliers. Who did they include? 
Well, everyone, pretty much. It's not universally supported, and I guess we'll come on to that in a minute, but um, it's it's across the political spectrum. This type of idea is, is we, we typically think of it as being associated with, you know, really pernicious um, atrocities, genocides associated with the Nazis. And so it, it become, it's often discussed and often thought of as being a very right-wing philosophy. It, and it certainly was in the late 19th and early 20th century, but it was also incredibly well supported on the socialist left as well, particularly in, in the UK when it was developing as an idea. The, the, the founders of left-wing politics in the 20th century were ardent eugenicists as well to improve the stock of the British people. The, the normalization of these types of ideas and ideas that we find so toxic today are, is, is always astonishing to me that it's that they're, they're just considered to be desirable practices, desirable policies to the extent that it infiltrates every tier of culture and society. You include a chilling excerpt from a, from a letter from a young D.H. Lawrence in, in your book where he fantasizes about about leading the sick, the halt, and the maimed into a lethal chamber. Oh, God, isn't it the worst? It's, 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 it's so shocking. He was young then, he was in his 20s. Weirdly, it's in a, a letter, of, effectively a love letter to someone he was trying to, uh, trying to woo. You know, maybe romance was different in those days, I have no idea. Um, but you could get Valentine's cards, which were eugenics-themed as well. You know, here is my, my goodly heritage, and therefore, you know, can I, can I woo you? And so it wasn't the toxic idea that we think of it today. There, there were charlatans and, and sort of snake oil salesmen as well that sold eugenic shampoo or eugenic face cream or all sorts of things like that. But I, I can never quite get my head around as a, as a sort of historian how, how this, this incredibly toxic idea was so universally supported just a, just a century ago. Were there any critics at the time of the idea? They certainly were, but they were a vocal minority. In the, the story in the UK is interesting because it's dominated by uh, the writer G.K. Chesterton, who is uh, a, a sort of comic playwright and poet and novel writer. And, but he was a, he was a Catholic. He was a, a, a pretty strict Catholic and a, and a Christian apologist, and he campaigned tirelessly against eugenics, against the political normalization and the policies of eugenics on the grounds that, I think accurately, he identified that the targets of eugenics policies, which often had these sort of vague pseudo-psychiatric terms like feeble-minded or imbeciles, but also were things like epilepsy or iterant alcoholism or women with menstrual troubles or broad racialized groups. You know, the, in, in the UK, it was Slavic people or the Irish. In the Americas, it was more indigenous people or First Nations people and immigrants, which also were Slavs and Irish, but, but from Europe. Um, and what Chesterton sa said, uh, what, what he identified was that these specific groupings, which are people who should be targeted for eugenic sterilization, actually really is just a, it, he's, they're, they're just the poor, right? So the eugenics was always the powerful and the wealthy targeting the poor. And this ties into another broad theme of eugenics at this time, which is emerging, which we now call the Great Replacement Theory. The, the idea that the existing population, and note that I didn't say indigenous population, but the existing population is has become decadent and is not having enough children to replace themselves. And instead, immigrants or undesirable 
uh, people are coming and they are much more fertile and they're having too many children. And this is a, it, it's a, it's an idea which predates eugenics. You know, it's, 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 it's one described in, in some of the classic analyses of the fall of Rome, Gibbon in particular. It's eternal. It's an idea which we still talk about today. It it comes up in the manifestos of various shooters around the world and various politicians today as well. It's never been shown to be the case. It's simply not true. Um, But it's right there in in the core of this political ideology. These ideas weren't just ideas. They actually became reality in the early 20th century in North America. Could you talk about some of the medical or the main medical, scientific, or legal acts that were taking place in the U.S. in support of eugenics or eugenic ideas? Yeah, so so the the first sort of the, the first semblance of eugenic type ideas occurs in the late nineteenth century, but they're they're not very and in a few states, and they're they're not very well defined, but they're attempts to get people of desirable qualities, meaning descended from white Europeans to breed with each other with with ideas of racial purity in, in mind. But by the time eugenics has become a sort of formal idea, and this is particularly derived from one man and one body, a guy called Charles Davenport, who met Francis Galton, the person we started with, in at the end of the 19th century, and came back to America with a sort of religious fervor associated with this this idea. By 1907, you get the first state legislation in Indiana for the enforced sterilization of people deemed undesirable. And it's, again, broad categories, feeble-minded is, the, is, the main, is, is one of the main defining aspects of it. It's a really quick transfer of ideas for the time, isn't it? It's astonishing. And the, the, this isn't in any way apologizing or trying to exonerate the British for this. But in the UK, where we come up with the idea, particularly via Galton, we never actually get this on the legislation, on, on, on the books. Despite Winston Churchill's best efforts. Despite Winston Churchill's best efforts. And in fact, Churchill was influenced significantly by an Indiana doctor, a guy called Sharp who is, I, I guess, best described as an enthusiastic vasectomy practicer. He claimed he could do 300 a day with no anesthetic. It's not an idea I want to think about too too much. Um, but Churchill read this pamphlet by this guy, Sharp, and Churchill takes that idea and tries to bring it to Parliament on at least three occasions in legislation. He's a young MP at this point, and um, he proposed... In, in drafted legislation that never became law, sterilizing men and women using, well, he describes it as Röntgen rays. And of course, Röntgen rays are X-rays. They'd only been discovered you know, a few years earlier in, in the 1890s. But he, he was the most politically active supporter of eugenics in the UK. And that's not, that's not a very well-known fact, is it? No, I mean, it's a hard conversation to have in the UK. People have such a passionate... A patriotic view of, of Churchill, who who did great things as a wartime leader, and I undeniably so. But there's a fierce conversation in the UK discourse, particularly in the press, that if you criticise Churchill, that, that you're part of some sort, sort of um, politically correct conspiracy. But the truth is that Churchill was an extreme racist. So he expressed racist views throughout his life. He embraced eugenics as a political ideology to to be imposed upon on the people with with unmatched enthusiasm amongst the british political class but he did drop it i mean he did he, he by by 1914 when the war started 
he, he basically expressed no interest in the subject ever again. That doesn't mean that we didn't have eugenics types policies in the UK. We didn't have it in the UK, but in North America, particularly in the US, they really embraced it full, full-throatedly. It spread quite widely. Um, who was funding eugenics-based research? Yeah, in the US, it's a, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating sort of jazz age story, this, because I mentioned Charles Davenport, and he's part of the sort of East Coast academic set. He was at Harvard, and then he, he, he set up the eugenics records office in Cold Spring Harbor, where there still is one of the great genetics laboratories, one of the best in the world. But he had taught a young woman called Mary Harriman Rumsey, who was the daughter of the railroad magnate E.H. Rumsey, who had died, but his wife, Mary Rumsey, her mother, was the richest woman in America. And Davenport was introduced to her, and she funded, alongside Rockefeller and Carnegie, they were the three main funders, they they funded at Charles Davenport's bequest, they funded the Eugenics Records Office at Cold Spring Harbor from 1902. I think it's 1907 until 1938, so right up against the beginning of the Second World War. And again, these are names that are well-respected, as you say. I mean, the Carnegie, who's built libraries in some of the smallest towns across North America. Yeah, it's part of the emerging philanthropy culture of North America. And eugenics wasn't their primary concern. They were, they were funding all sorts of health and social interventions. But it indicates how normalized eugenics was in forced sterilization was as part of medical outreach. In order to treat the people and, and improve public health, enforce sterilization of those deemed unworthy of their own reproductive rights was that that was just normal stuff. And particularly a normal conversation for the American aristocrats. So those those East Coast people who are part of the they're the model on which the Gatsby characters are based. Because Fitzgerald was aware of them. He knew those. He knew the Rumseys. He knew the, the, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. And, and he, he gives those roles to people like Tom Buchanan in, in The Great Gatsby, who's a, you know, who's a grotesque and odious figure. And he, right at the beginning, expresses straight up great replacement theory, saying he, he's quoting a, a, a popular science book that he's read. This is Fitzgerald criticizing these buffoons by giving the most odious views to the most odious character, which is Tom Buchanan. But it's right there as the sort of normalized conversation that's happening amongst these these East Coast aristocrats. So that's one form of pushback. Are there any others that you're aware of in, in that era in North America? A lot of them come from the, from the science itself. So people like Charles Davenport were obsessed with a particular form of inheritance, which we call Mendelian. You learn about how genetics works by studying Mendel, the European monk, friar, they're slightly different, uh, who did his pea plant experiments. And he bred thousands of pea plants together. And with that established that there, there were these units of inheritance that were passed from generation to generation. And with maths and stats, you could predict uh, what generation would have particular, what characteristics would appear in, in various generations. Mendel did those experiments in the 1860s, but they were only translated into English in 1900. This version of genetics, which is correct, gave the eugenics movement an incredible boost because all of a sudden they had the genes themselves. They had these units of inheritance. And it was Davenport who first describes the inheritance of eye colour, blue and brown eyes. It was Davenport who first describes 
Ginger hair is a recessive trait. It's Davenport who first dis- discovers that Huntington's disease, the, the pattern of inheritance is Mendelian in Huntington's disease. All, all of these happening in the first decade of the 20th century over at Cold Spring Harbor. The first problem is that with the 21st century view of genetics, we know that those models are incredibly simplistic. And, and really, although we teach genetics like this, they don't really explain human variation. They don't really explain eye color at all. The other problem is that alongside these traits like eye color and hair color and, hunt- and diseases like Huntington's disease, Davenport also asserted that the pattern of inheritance for all sorts of human behaviors, diseases, and characteristics was basically the same. So he, there was a gene for seafaringness, but also sort of sexual preferences and, and um, laziness and you know things that we now know are hugely complex. But no, it was a gene for everything. And the reason he wanted that is because if it's as simple as that, you can plot things on a family tree and you've got a, a fulcrum on which actual sterilization or eugenics policies can be enacted. Now, the, you asked me about the dissenters. The dissenters actually came from within the scientific community. So key founders of genetics in, in America, people like Thomas Hunt Morgan at New York, actually pointed out that the stats weren't very good what Davenport was publishing was just pretty bad science and that these characteristics are obviously not inherited in this very straightforward Mendelian way. So using them as a basis for policy was folly. Geneticist Adam Rutherford. You're listening to Ideas and an episode about the past and present of eugenic thinking. That's the subject of Adam Rutherford's latest book, Control. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Adam Rutherford is passionate about science. He believes in it. He's a lecturer in genetics. He hosts a BBC Science podcast with colleague Hannah Fry. Now, this is an interesting one. Hannah, what do you see if I ask you to conjure up an image? And he writes popular books about science. Most recently, two opinionated books about science, race, and reproductive control. Hi, I'm Dr. Adam Rutherford. I'm the author of How to Argue with a Racist. This is my new book. It's called Control. It's an examination of how science can be twisted into dark ideologies and how an esoteric academic idea grew from the chat in the salons of Victorian gentlemen scientists all the way to the gates of Auschwitz. He argues that scientists are part of society, human, flawed, and not always above the politics and prejudices of their time. Biology as an academic discipline emerges out of the political ideology of European colonial expansion 
and 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 the the, the racial categories that we use today are invented in service of that political ideology. So the roots of all biology are, are in fact entwined with scientific racism. And you get the same thing with that happening again in the 19th century with genetics. Genetics emerges out of and in service of the political ideology of eugenics. As we've heard, the eugenic population control theories of Victorian polymath Francis Galton had the veneer of scientific thought. They met up with the political and social anxieties of the early 20th century. And in parts of Canada and the U.S., they became policy. Hundreds of thousands of vulnerable and racialized people were legally subjected to forced sterilization. Those laws were a template for those of the Third Reich, history tells us. And yet, even that horror was not enough to kill off eugenic thinking once and for all, as you'll hear in the second half of our conversation about Adam Rutherford's book, Control, the Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. What happens in the 19th and the 20th century is that science is co-opted into this mindset using the, the Galton's neologism of eugenics. And people with that particular mindset leap on it. And, and this happens over and over again in history, right? Science, new scientific research, politicians or campaigners or ideologues use the science as a crutch to support their pre-existing ideologies. The word eugenics became toxic. And the industrial practice of it, particularly in Nazi Germany and to a lesser extent in America, in, in the USA, um, goes away, wanes. But the, the mode of thinking does not. And enforced sterilizations continue in America and Canada and uh, all around the world in, in India and the, the two most populous countries, China and India, we, you know, they continue to this day. So with the the new techno techniques in, in genetics, which expose a better understanding of how human genetics works, but also the possibility of, of altering our, our genes. It doesn't keep me up at night that this is going to be widespread, widespread practice because th th these are technologies which are not very available. To, you know, they're, they're, they're available to only the rich and the, in, in wealthy countries. But they give the ideology a huge boost. And what was striking to me is that the idea never goes away, but every the same conversations that are happening in 2020 were happening in 1920. The only difference is we're now talking about gene engineering and, and polygenic scores and things like that. But the, the, the motivation remains the same. How did eugenics advocacy in the West change in the decades after the atrocities of World War II, when, when those came to light? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is, disappointingly, slowly. That there was there was still remained great support for eugenics in the, in the years after the war, but it was waning. The, the Americans pulled the plug on funding eugenics research in the years running up to the war, and, and Rockefeller did pull, pull its funding from the Eugenics Records Office, and I think it's from 38 from memory. After the war, you see the eugenics organizations, laboratories, journals, and societies dwindling. And in the scientific context, it's not so much they dwindling, but they, 
they mutate, they evolve into genetics departments. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that in a conspiratorial way or, or a, oh my God, you know, genetics labs around the world are actually eugenics labs. They're not. But a lot of eugenics in the lab was simply trying to understand human inheritance. So the framework, the basis of understanding disease genetics and behavior genetics often came out of labs that 20 or 30 years earlier were called eugenics laboratories. And mine is no different. Again, not trying to exonerate this behavior, but um, eugenics was, was part of the Cold Spring Harbor, which is now the best genetics lab on earth. My department, the Department of Genetics, Evolution and Environment at University College London, is a direct descendant from the eugenics uh, laboratory founded by Galton in 1904. And that ha- we see that pattern all, all, over the, all over the world. So the rejection of, of eugenics uh, as an idea is, it, it definitely happens, but the mindset per- persists and the word becomes toxic, but, but the sort of, the, the, the ideas that underlie it re- remain present. And sterilization continues right up until our present days, almost. Not even almost, yeah. So that that's a shocking thing. The numbers are significantly lower, but there's we we think that there were enforced sterilization in America happening in the in the dozens and maybe the few dozens twenties in, in ICE detention centers in the last couple of years. There is an ongoing class action in Canada. Uh, I think it's exclusively First Nations women who were coercively sterilized as recently as 2018. I think it is. And then there's, you know, we don't really know what's happening in, in China. In India, the most common form of contraception in women of reproductive age is, is long-term or uh, permanent sterilization. Now, are these things eugenics? I don't know. It becomes a semantic argument, I think. Are they attempts to remove the reproductive rights of individual citizens? Absolutely. Who do they happen to most often? racialized minorities or the very poorest members of society. So again, the mindset's the same, even if the numbers are not the 20th century genocides. Um, I studied genetics when I was at university. That's my degree. Uh, oh, I did not know that. Yes. I, Exciting. Well, it's, it, it was, uh, it, it was, it's a long time ago, but it's still very much a topic of interest for me. But I don't remember hearing the word eugenics until I don't know, year three. And it was then that, you know, I was able to start looking into the ethics, the ethical side. Just how well known would you say, having you being a popularizer of science, how well do you think the rest of society beyond geneticists actually know about eugenics and the history of it? I, I think almost none. I think it's it's very surprising that it's a word that I think many people are not familiar with. So the book before this, which which you mentioned, was about race science um, and and similar sorts of ideas, but really focused on race. Now, you, you tell the, the way I gauge this sometimes is by talking to my editor about what the title should be, and and titles are really important. I don't think they necessarily convey what's in the book, but selling a book about the history of genetics and biology with a reference frame of scientific racism is is easy because you call it something like how to argue with a racist and and people know exactly what you're talking about immediately actually it's quite a serious book about about population genetics and the history of this field so you know but you can't you can't call a book 
population genetics and the history of scientific racism if you if you want to you, you want your children to eat but when we came to talking about the title of for, for the eugenics book we struggled for a long time because you, you say eugenics to most people and they go don't know what that is 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 there some irony in the fact that that is the case that most people don't know what eugenics is and yet we kind of swim in those waters i mean we are when the human genome project you know the sequencing of the genome was going on we regularly as geneticists talked about the possibility of designer babies or you know perfecting uh, the human race and now it's actually it, it is actually in the water i mean how concerned are you that we may be kind of just slipping into a eugenic mindset without actually defining what it is yeah i'm genuinely concerned about that i think that the those that the commercial a genetic test. I think companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com and, 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 and so on. When, when people have spent decades trying to teach people to move away from this deterministic view that genetics determines what you are, and in the Mendelian view, you have a specific gene and it, it, that, that is what you're going to be. And it's part of our language, right? It's just a normal part of cultural discourse. People say Cristiano Ronaldo is the gene for playing football or whatever. Right? And obviously, things are way more complex than that. And there are hundreds of genes involved in those types of behaviors. But also, there's the environment, how you're raised, everything that isn't genetic. Nurture, nurture nature versus nurture, a phrase coined by Francis Galton. But I uh, I think that sort of mindset is so normalized in society that we're really pushing against uh, the tide. Something happened in the 2000s, which was the, the advent of these ancestry testing kits. And I don't think any of us anticipated that that was going to end up being maybe the most significant way that, that non-geneticists, non-biologists would engage with genetics. Most people are doing this because it's fun, right? Because they want to find out some fun stuff. All white people want to find out they're descended from Vikings because Vikings were cool. <laughs> I, I used to get dozens of letters a week saying, I've done one of these tests and it says I'm descended from Vikings. You know what? Everyone's descended from Vikings. <laughs> it's, it really doesn't make you special. And then in America, it's a different story because, um, well, a lot of people want to be what actually now want to be descended from First Nations or Indigenous people. And that's a huge political um, nightmare. Absolutely, there are companies out there that you can you can spit in a tube, and people will tell you that you're from one particular tribe, and therefore give you a certificate. Which do, does that have any legal value? It certainly doesn't have any scientific value because there isn't a tribe in Canada or America that uses genetic ancestry testing for tribal membership. So our work is never going to be done because I think it's part of. It's very much part of the human condition to look at our ancestry, to look back to our ancestors and try from that to extract some sort of meaning and belonging in our own life. And one of the strange things about genetics, the relationship between your genes and what you actually are is far less robust than what most people think. Yeah. The the other thing about human nature is that we tend to repeat um, things. History tends to repeat itself, as we always say. We are living in a time, unfortunately, where there's resentment of migrants, you know, and the poor, there's racism, replacement theory has probably never been flourished as it has today. Do you think that eugenic thinking underpins some of that or has it gone underground? Is, is there a relationship between all that and where we are with that kind of thinking? 
it's almost the other way around. It's that that type of thinking is permanent and it feeds into what becomes a sort of gestalt way of thinking, which is the eugenics mindset. So there's elements to it, which is great replacement theory. There's elements to it, which are, which are scientific racism. There's, there's a lot of classism and ableism, which are inherent in, in eugenics as well. Then there's the idea of that genetic determinism, which is which in, in humans is sometimes expressed as the sort of racehorse theory. Donald Trump used to talk about good genes, the racehorse theory, that he comes from good genetic stock. And so my concern is when politicians, writers and opinion leaders are adopting these kind of ideas, just like Tom Buchanan did in Gatsby mm. and saying, this is what we should do. This is, this is why we should close the borders or this is why we should have more um, IQ type testing for minority groups. Or this is why we should sterilize this group of people because the science says that it, it, it will improve the quality of society. The science doesn't say that, and it never has said that. So the fight for me as a scientist is that you can't have my tools to justify your bigotry. As happened in the past. Um, we talk about you know the idea of designer babies, but you said eugenics was an attempt to improve public health, initially anyway, something we're surely going to be tempted to do and we are doing in the most effective way possible. And you talk in the book about how parents, you know, are compelled, compelled, of course, to do the best for their children. Is it crazy to be worried that eugenic thinking might come into play for governments around that idea of improving public health, that we might try to make babies resistant to disease, for example? From a scientific point of view, I think that the, the, the types of interventions which are based on genetics as a, based on our current understanding and our, and our techniques available to us, are still in the realms of the future at best and possibly science fiction, which doesn't mean that governments aren't, aren't thinking about it. We, we are now capable of looking at the genomes of any, anyone, babies, even embryos, and making predictions, probabilistic predictions about what, what their characteristics will be like. But they are probabilistic, and that's really important. I, I, I take the view that... We, we actually know how to improve society. We know how to make better members of society already. We tend to do it, or, or, or the, the, the sort of things with a proven track record are things like good public health policy or free school meals for people who are at, in the lowest socioeconomic category, good access to sport and health, reading programs, for young kids. I mean, the correlation between success, academic success and whether your parents read to you as a baby is huge. And so I'm, I'm not, I'm a scientist, I'm a geneticist, and I, this is, this is the, the life I've committed to, and I'm in service of science and science to improve the quality of humankind. I just don't think that the interventions that are being speculated about are the best ways to do that. Maybe they will be in the future. Um, so I'm just anxious. I'm just anxious that the same thing happens. As you said, history repeats itself. Actually, do you know what? Someone, I said that the other day to a historian and he, and he corrected me and said, history doesn't repeat itself. People repeat history. And, and it's an interesting distinction, isn't it? I think part of the conversation has to be led by geneticists, has to be led by scientists. You know, scientists generally think of themselves as being apolitical or above politics. 
But I don't think that's good enough. I think we have to know our own history and to see how the science of human biology, human inheritance, genetics and evolution has been used in the past for political ideologies uh, as a means of saying, well, like I said a minute ago, you can't have my toys to justify your 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 bigotry. But yeah, I, I once described eugenics as um, bigotry dressed up as biology. And I think that's I think that's true to this day. And I think I think we need to be wary of that in the future. With all of that in mind, let's go back to the to how you open your book, which is in an incident that happened in 2018, the controversy around an unethical experiment where embryos were edited at the genetic level, presumably with the idea or the, the idea was to make these children um, HIV resistant. It was a failed experiment and the scientists went to jail. But is that the kind of intervention that you still worry about? Is it still a continuing concern in the scientific community that this was not an isolated incident? I'm fairly confident that it was not an isolated incident. So this is the story of Heijan Kuei, who in 2018 announced proudly to the world that he had um, genetically edited, using this this relatively new technique called CRISPR, uh, to to babies during the IVF process to introduce um, a mutation in a particular gene called CCR5 to make them, as you say, resistant to HIV infection. Now, by his own admission, the gene edits that had been planned, because there is a version of this gene, CCR5, that is naturally occurring, and people with two copies of that, that version are immune to HIV in, infection. And the father of the two uh, girls was HIV positive. And, and in China, HIV has huge social stigma associated with it, in, in the same way that it did in the UK in the early 80s. Um, and and um, I get, I'm guessing the same in North America. Yes. I, don't, I don't know that area so well. Um, so he was trying to do something good, right? You know, his motivation was to help these parents to give immunity to, to HIV infection to these two unborn girls. They were. They, and, and in fact, in 2018, he announced their birth. The timeline of these events. I start the book because actually you're speaking to me from my bedroom and it was exactly <laughs> over there <laughs> when I woke up at one morning. I think it, from memory, I think it was a Monday morning and um, my phone was just, I had dozens of messages and dozens of texts saying, you need to speak to me now. What the hell's going on? Loads of press people calling me up. And it's because this guy had announced this. Because of the time difference between Hong Kong, where this announcement was made at a, at a big a reproductive genetics conference and the UK, I'd slept through this and woken up to these messengers. For the first several hours, the Chinese press was hailing him as a genius and a future Nobel Prize winning genius alongside the, you know, the people who invented IVF in the first place. And then when they gauged the international reaction as it spread around the world, which was utter horror, um, an illegal experiment, not a health intervention, it's an experiment. Um, and, and like I said, by his own admission, the gene edits didn't work. So he introduced these, these edited versions of these genes that were unknown to nature or science. And, and he put them back, back in the embryos and back into the mother and they were born. Amy and, uh, sorry, Lulu and Nana. And then later we discovered there was a third girl called Amy who was also born. And, and those headlines, the Chinese headlines pronouncing Hei Jiang Kui a genius, uh, vanished and they no longer exist and there's no trace of them. Um, and and then there was universal condemnation. Hei Jiang Kui did go to prison 
um, for three years, he's now out. Wow. We found out a few months ago he's back to the lab. He's out and he's back in the lab and we're not quite sure what he's doing. He's talking about gene therapy and, you know, that story is ongoing. It was an isolated incident, but I don't think it shows that the technology, even though it failed, the technology is relatively, it's not it, straightforward is the wrong way to describe it, but he's combining two things the IVF process and embryo selection, which has been around since the 19, late 70s, early 80s, with a new, new techniques in genetic engineering, which are, I mean, they're specialist, but there are literally probably tens or if not hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are capable of doing it. We do it in undergraduate classes. It won't be long before we'll be doing it in school classes, because as with all technologies, technological developments, the point is to normalize them, to make them easy to do. But he's combining them into a thing which is, uh, ethically, extremely dubious. Scientifically, still not. I mean, easy to do, but but not. It's not like you know, hammering a nail, um, and and actually illegal as well. Um, so, if there's one positive thing that comes out of that story, is that the international community was alerted to this and was, after a few hours universal and condemning it. Where is or where should this ethical conversation be happening? Everywhere. Um, it has to involve expertise from scientists, from, from doctors, from geneticists, from reproductive health experts, patient advocacy groups as well. This is really important. Um, but it, it has to be happening in society. I, scientists are members of society and they shouldn't and don't get to make decisions that's how democracies work. My work, all of my work outside of, of academia, is in, in sort of public communication of science, and genetics in particular, is that the conversations we have in society are informed, that they are not in the, in the fantasy realms of science fiction, which and I'm a big science fiction fan, love science fiction, but the conversations about genetics and in, in, in science fiction are not where the lab is, what we're actually capable of. But also that when ideologues on the political left or right, as has historically been the case with eugenics, begin to lean on new scientific techniques to promote their ideas, that, that the demos, that the people are equipped with the real science to say, well, actually, what you've just said is not, that isn't possible. You're, you're talking about a a genetic intervention, which we don't understand yet. And, and again, that's the point I made earlier about, you know, like you spend 30 years doing this and having a really sophisticated understanding of genetics and the best conclusion I can come up with for most genetics. We don't know how eye colour works at, at a genetic level. We don't know that. We teach it to 16-year-olds using this, this model. Brown is dominant over blue, blah, blah, blah. You've just passed high school biology. We don't really know how that works at all. And if I don't, if I'm saying that, if, I, if I'm saying that the, the simplest model of genetic inheritance in humans as a professional geneticist is something we don't really understand, if you genuinely got politicians talking about intelligence, selecting or gene editing for intelligence at a population level, they're in la-la land. They're in scientific la-la land before we even start talking about the ethics. So my goal is to raise the the level of of literacy, scientific literacy, so that 
society decides what we do with these technologies. And you were doing that at a time, you know, and you've written this critique at a time when mistrust in science is probably, again, one of the highest in human history. Where's the line between critiquing science and putting trust in it? Ah, man, if I knew the answer to that. <laughs> we, we, um, we got a paper coming out, um, which I'll be you know, pushing out all over my social media and hopefully we'll, do, we'll, we'll make it into the press, where we actually t- ask that question in a, um, a quantitative way um, and based it around the pandemic. So we, we conducted a large survey and asked, basically trying to find out if the pandemic and the various aspects... Remember the time a couple of years ago, everyone started talking about PCR and exponential growth curves and R numbers. And so the question that emerged out of that is, well, has scientific literacy, specifically about genetics, has that improved? How has it changed during the pandemic? Now, spoiler alert, it has. But what we have found, effectively a Dunning-Kruger effect, which is that people who are ignorant of a subject tend to be more confident about it. And that what we've actually seen is a polarization. So trust in science, the people who who had extreme views about science, either trust or not not or, or suspicion, that during the pandemic, that those views have been amplified. So people who had trust in science are now more trustworthy of science, and people who are suspicious of science are now more suspicious of it. So um, you know, as ever with scientists, I have to say, I don't know what you do with that information. <laughs> I don't know what happens next. Probably more follow-up studies to try and understand it. But, you know, you can't separate this out from society. And the mechanisms by which information is disseminated are very different today. You know, it's an ongoing conversation about social media that we know has the effect of amplifying extreme views, but also giving a platform to fringe views. I actually think that trust in science is, is pretty good. If any of your listeners have any doubt, vaccines are the single most effective intervention, medical intervention in human history, with the possible exception of, of sterilization of water, right? Um, the vaccines are safe. They've been tested billions of times and they are safe. Public service announcement there. Sorry. Yeah, I, I'm, people will complain, and <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure they will. But that's that's my stance on that. I think that most people do have trust in science and will get vaccinated as soon as they can because they are safe, and we've got these mechanisms that test these things. Science is a self-correcting endeavor, but only when humans self-correct it. You've been listening to my conversation with Adam Rutherford. He's a geneticist, BBC radio and podcast host, and science communicator. His latest book is called Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. Find more information on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. This episode was produced by Lisa Godfrey. Web producer for ideas is Lisa Ayuso. Danielle Duval is our technical producer. Idea's senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.